theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaclia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. How are you today? I'm doing great because this is my favorite topic. Yeah, it's a favorite topic. It's a little, it's not a favorite in that we like what's going on, right? But no, but the because you know it offers ideas and solutions to a big problem that we have right now. Well, retention is near and dear to my heart. And so is our guest today because she represents what rejuvenated me as an early career teacher. So we're going to be talking about retention and networking and mentorship. And Dr. Tanya Baker brings so much to this conversation. So Tanya is a teacher, a writer, a nonprofit leader with 25 years of experience working in education in and outside of schools. She worked for more than a decade as an in-school educator, first as a high school English teacher, where I started to in middle and high school, and later as a literacy coach in schools in Maine. There, she learned to teach through practice, study, and luckily, involvement in the University of Maine Writing Project, where she became a teacher consultant by attending the inaugural Summer Institute of that Writing Project site. Now, as the Director of National Programs at the National Writing Project, Tanya has worked with many funders and partners, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, the Carnegie Corporation, National Science Foundation, and many others. And through these relationships and in collaboration with excellent teacher leaders around the country, she has built and managed national programs. And that keeps us connected. So let's talk about some of your particular interests in those liminal spaces of teaching writing, writing in the disciplines, the integral part of doing science and history, that instruction that crosses boundaries. We have a lot to say here. We have a so lot welcome. to unpack. Yes. yes. Welcome to our podcast, Tanya. Thank welcome. you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Welcome, Dr. Baker. I know we're going to spend a lot of time talking about teacher retention. That's something that Dr. Amy and I have been talking about a lot, unfortunately. <laughs> But before we go down that road, let's talk about you. I want to learn more about what you do, you know, your resume and your bio, 
is amazing. You look amazing this morning, by the way. The humidity hasn't hit you yet. You know, welcome to our area where it's very humid. <laughs> I have very thin hair, so actually the humidity is great for me. I look, I look better. <laughs> it'll, it'll give you it'll get give you volume. <laughs> so welcome to a very humid day. But let's talk about. I want to get to know you more. Talk about who you are and what you do. Well, Amy said a lot of things about who I am and what I do, but in my own words, I am the director of national programs at the National Writing Project, which is a, a national network of teachers interested in the teaching of writing. There are about 170 sites around the country of national writing projects, and they bring teachers together to share their best practices with one another and learn together about how to be better teachers. And they work across pre-K to college, they work with educators outside of school as well as in-school teachers. And then I have the amazing privilege of creating national programs that allow teachers from different writing projects in different contexts to come together to work around areas of interest or problems of practice that are important to them in improving their teaching of writing. And I because a writing project site will feed like their best or most excited or most interested teachers up into a national program. I've had the amazing luck and good fortune to spend this part of my career really always in contact with amazing teachers and teachers who work in all contexts across the United States. I want to talk about how you got involved with the writing project I entered into the writing project through a summer institute, I think after about seven years of teaching, which was a, a good time for that rejuvenation. What about your entrance? My entrance was um, at a really critical moment in my teaching career. I had been teaching for five years. I came into being a teacher in a kind of, before we called it this, but in a kind of alt cert situation where I had a bachelor's degree in psychology. I had almost a minor in English. And then people said, oh, okay, you can take these three courses and you can be a teacher. And I'm not sure if I had been gone through a regular certification program, I would have felt a lot more prepared because teaching is just so complex. But after five years of teaching, I mean, my administration, my colleagues were very supportive. They told me I was doing a great job, but you know, every day you go in that classroom by yourself with kids and you know what you're doing, you know, you know how it feels and who's succeeding and who's failing. It's important to note that when I decided to become a teacher, it was in large part because my brother, who's three years younger than I am and, and very much smarter than I am, had dropped out of high school. And I just couldn't imagine how we had had such different experiences. That school had really been a saving place for me. We had a little bit of a rough childhood. And school was the place where I could go and feel safe and feel seen as successful. And that he had come from the same family that I had and gone to the same school I had and had such a different experience. Um, this made me wanna make school better for more kids. And I think what happened in those five years was I was doing okay with successful kids, but I wasn't making any difference for kids for whom school was unfriendly or, or um, threatening or hard. And I just felt like I was failing at the main thing I had set out to do. And at that moment, somebody introduced me to the writing project. And as you said, it was the inaugural summer institute of the main writing project. I applied, 
I got the application, I applied, I went to the, the, there was an information session about what the Summer Institute would be like. I was surrounded by these amazing teachers, which is where I spent the rest of my life. I'm so lucky, but at that moment, it didn't feel like it was lucky. I just felt overwhelmed and underprepared and like I was gonna be the worst student in the Summer Institute class. And I thought about quitting, but I didn't know what else to do. And it seemed like, well, if I was gonna, if I had the opportunity to spend four weeks surrounded by these amazing teachers, I should probably take it. And I did. And you hear a lot of people in the writing projects say things like, it changed my life. But, you know, yeah, I was a high school teacher in Bangor, in Brewer, Maine. And now I, you know, I'm the director of national programs of the National Writing Project. So, and I live in California. So I really wow. have to say in every way, it changed the course of my life. What a journey. You know, we have something similar. Both Amy and I, we also went through kind of an alt-cert program to become teachers. We did not oh. set out to be teachers. Teachers kind of, teaching kind of found me. I was on a science track. I was in going in the direction of medical and science. And so teaching found me. And here, what, almost 30 years later? Yeah. I'm still an educator. But we have met. You know, Amy's introduced me to some amazing people that are involved in the writing project. One is focused on ESL and one is a math teacher. And it took me a while to wrap my brain around the math teacher being so involved in the writing project and how she infused that in math and making her students better learners of math through writing. And so it's just amazing. So this is not just an English teacher thing like you and Amy, That's you know, right. you know, I've learned how all teachers have benefited and it's really rejuvenated them. This is something that we want to start another site at GSU at Governor State mm -hmm. University. So hopefully we're able to do that. But speaking of rejuvenating teachers, because we need to find additional ways to rejuvenate teachers, let's talk about your perception of the teacher shortage, because I feel like we have this perfect storm right now. We have the challenge of attracting teachers, and we can go down that long road of why it's so hard to attract teachers. You know, I did an article a couple of years ago, and it talks about 67, 60 years ago, what were your choices as a, as a woman and right. your professions? And now those who can, women who are smart and can and want to impact have thousands of areas that they can go into to impact, not just teaching. And then we had those that are retiring, you know, our baby boomers, they're leaving. Mm -hmm. And then we had COVID. So now they're leaving even quicker. So we have, you know, we have teachers that are leaving because of all these pressures that weren't there years ago. So it's almost like we have this perfect storm now. So I just want to hear what is your perception of why we have this teacher shortage? <laughs> You've named a lot of things that I would have on my list. And I would agree with you that we're in a perfect storm. I think some things you haven't said, but I'm sure you see in here too are, you know, if you ask any single person, tell me about your favorite teacher, even people who came up in hard schools or difficult schools, any single person will like, like their face softens, their eyes light up, and they tell you this story of this person who reached them at a critical moment in their life. And that was really important to them. And they remember their name and they remember like what their classroom looked like. We all 
virtually all of us have a, a great teacher story, but we're living in a sea of what I would call disinformation about teachers and the profession that's really disrespectful. You know, this idea that teachers shouldn't get pensions, that their pay is too high, which is so ridiculous. I mean, teachers barely make more than somebody working at the hardware store or people without, without a bachelor's degree. And, and teachers can't, so that teachers are feeling disrespected by the media and by this sort of larger conversation about teaching and learning. Teachers do not make enough money to feed their families sometimes. They take second jobs in the summer or even at night after school. And now there's a whole push to move a kind of political movement into schools and to, and to make teachers a sort of scapegoats around a whole bunch of things that people want to talk about race, gender, and sexuality. And teachers are being harassed, not just at school board meetings, but like sometimes in their homes or people are coming after their, their children. And all of that is happening. And then there are these other things, like in many places, the physical plants, the school buildings where teachers work are just not welcoming or attractive or nice places to be in. I left the school and went to work at, a, at an organization where I had like a huge desk, a giant whiteboard and a very comfortable rolly chair. And I was like, this is amazing. And I worked with other colleagues who hadn't come to our work together through a school and they would be like, I need a more ergonomic chair. And I said, what are you talking about? It's like the wheel doesn't fall off and you know, you have your own desk. And then I was, I thought, oh my goodness, I've been so, oh, and another thing, I, <laughs> when I went to work outside of a school, I would go tell my boss every time I left the building. I didn't bring my lunch today, so I'm just gonna run down the street and get lunch or, and she, after a while, she said, will you please stop doing that? Like, I know you used to work in a school, but you don't have to check in or out with me. And you're allowed to get lunch wherever you want. And you have lunchtime, it's yours. And I realized I'd been so trained to like be on a schedule of bells and to have somebody else be in control of every minute of my day. And, and then, you know, I, I, these were things that because teaching was my first job, I didn't even see. When my sister became a teacher, she had worked five years in a bank and it was not a very interesting job. She like worked in a bank vault. She oversaw people rolling quarters and counting dollar bills. But when she left that and came to teaching, she would call me once a month crying. And she would say, if I calculate that my hourly wage, given how many hours I'm working around the clock to be ready, I'm so depressed, I can't even keep going. So the other, the other thing is the job can be, if you're not careful, all consuming. Absolutely. And then, right. And then you just said, like, now you mentioned the pandemic. I think we all have to think about this latest school shooting. Teachers are being asked in one way or another to risk their lives. And we aren't thoughtful or respectful about what that means or why that is. I want to poke at something a little bit and kind of unpack something you said about the discussions in the curriculum around race, around gender, inclusion, 
diversity. And there are a lot of policies being put into place at state and local levels that implement, I guess what you might say, a teacher-proof curriculum where it can't be messed with. It's very simple. It's apolitical, I guess you could say, and very neutral, perhaps. What happens when we try to do that? A teacher-proof curriculum suggests that if you just do this, everyone will be successful. And we talk a lot about standards and standardization. And I believe that this latest standards movement came from a good place. I believe that people saw some real inequities in the way and what children were learning and what children were able to do when they finished school and they, and they implemented standards as a solution to that. So I wanna recognize that it was meant to solve a problem. But there are often unintended consequences to the problem, to, to our solutions to problems. And I think that the problems with standardized curriculum affect teachers and students. So first of all, standardized curriculum doesn't really see the whole child. It only sees the child in relationship to a standard. And it judges a student either successful or deficient sort of constantly. It's a constant judgment of your success or failure. It's really obvious to us the, the hurt that's caused to children who are who go to school every day and are judged ev every day as deficient in many things and what that does to their self-esteem, their sense of ownership of their own lives, their, their, their value. I would also argue that a standardized curriculum like that is, is damaging to kids who are successful in it because the standards are pretty simple and you can really easily get labeled smart and good. But it, once you leave that system and you go out into a more complex world and to do more complex work, and you find that that's, it's no, you're not just easily good at it. A lot of kids who are, have been very successful through a standardized curriculum find they really struggle when they leave school. And I am in an interesting, as a parent, in an interesting position of having kids who really struggled in in public school in that standardized curriculum to like be seen and to be successful and kids who, and one of those and one of the other kind who was really like really good at school. And it's been very interesting as they have gone through college and finished college that they have switched places. And about her junior year, my, my student who was great at high school and, and has come to say, I really like I really liked being told what to do and being told I was good at it. And by the time I hit my junior year of college and I had to make those decisions for myself and I had to like own what I was going to learn and how I was going to do it, I really floundered. So I don't think it's good for any kids. Right. You even talked about your rote way of learning at, as a teacher and you had to break out of those habits once exactly. you took a new position. And, and it's very similar as you're talking. It reminds me of my elementary experience in parochial school, right? All those words yeah. that you mentioned, you know, normal, good, smart, and it works. If, if you fit in those categories, you know, those categories, it works for you having the standardized curriculum. But we know that students are outside those lines, right? And so it does not address all of our many, many, many students that are outside of those lines to the right or to the left. And so it really requires something more 
I'm, I'm interested in what you said earlier about your expectation of teaching. You know, Amy and I, we both had expectations of teaching. It was anything but. I was kind of in survival mode mm -hmm. when I started teaching. I started teaching my children first. And I was like, everybody needs to do this and people need to teach this way and we should do things this, you know, like I found everything that was wrong with teaching and that I was going to be come in and I was going to be superwoman and I was going mm -hmm. to make teaching better. And <laughs> but then I was just struggling. You know, mm -hmm. I was thrown in a classroom of 40 non-English speaking students and I was teaching them science. And given no mentorship, no guidance. And so talk about, because you, you talk about what your perception was and what you were going to come in. And, you know, you thought it was going to be easy. So what did you think then? And what was your revelation? And what did you do about it? Oh, boy. Um, well, as you know, I, I, as I said, I didn't have a revelation myself. I just was going to quit. Um, and I think it's interesting that you say that you uh, taught your kids first, because what I would say is most young, mo many, I, I think most, most people who enter the profession enter as a first job and they're young and they don't have kids. And I think to having a kid, if I'd had a kid first, you know, that's the hardest job you have that you can't quit. So you have to figure it out. Right. And you have to accept your own failures and get up tomorrow and do it anyway. So um, I, but I didn't have that. And so my plan was to quit until I went to the writing project. And what that meant for me was a number of things. One, there were colleagues, but they weren't in my school. Like there was a little distance between my practice and these new colleagues. And I, felt more safe and more comfortable to talk to them about what my struggles were. And the conversation in that space was really something I, I think of myself as a very pragmatic person. And the thing that the Reading Project taught me was to connect theory and practice and that both were important. So um, your practice is real evidence of teaching and learning and you can learn from it. And if you bring a theoretical frame to that, to studying your own practice, you can have ways of thinking about it that just sort of the raw data floating in your face all day, every day is harder to make out. So that was one thing. So those two things, having colleagues who were separate a little bit from my school and we're having different conversations because you know how conversations at schools can be a lot of things. They can be about other colleagues they can be about what family that kid came from or oh yeah we've seen them or what neighborhood that kid comes from and all of that's removed when you step outside and just talk about the practice of teaching with people who don't even know those kids or that, that neighborhood or or care and they're asking different questions so colleagues some distance and this learning to connect theory and practice really helped me change my attitude to the struggle of teaching. We are talking to Dr. Tanya Baker, Director of National Programs at the National Writing Project. And I just want to echo what you're saying about the distance and about the 
the colleagues who are there and invested. I remember so many conversations with colleagues across the nation when we're sitting at a table and one would say, can I just pick your brain for a minute? And we would have these amazing conversations wrestling with problems that might be to that local school, but something that outside insight could bring Mm -hmm. uh, some kind of solution or at least manage the issue in some way. I'm just, I want to know, like, how can we make teaching less lonely? Because what you're saying is in our own school spaces, it can be lonely. And what can a network do to help sustain the profession? How can we help? Yeah, so now, Amy, you know you're talking about my most, my passion for the last 15 years or whatever. But other people are talking about this too. So one of the first books I read about the value of a network was by Minu Rami, Rami in her book. One of the things that's great about this book for young teachers is that she wrote it like in her first, maybe her third year of teaching. And it's called Thrive, Five Ways to Invigorate Your Teaching. And she talks about five things, but one of them is have a network. And she talks about kind of layers of people who can help you, like make friends with the teachers in your school, have have people who are really interested in the same problems of practice that you are and that you can talk to and that you feel safe talking to. Have colleagues outside of your school who do what you do as well. And then she talks about even thinking about distant colleagues, colleagues who don't know you, but whose work you know and respect and that you draw from. So she would talk about, you know, like I read a book by Jim Burke or I read Nancy Atwell or whatever. And I consider them a mentor or a colleague as well. And being able to, when you're struggling to stop and say, who could help me with this and not feel like you're just carrying that burden yourself. Kira Baker Doyle has also written several books about networking teachers. Her newest book is Network by Design, Interventions for Teachers, Build Social Capital. And she had an earlier book a few years ago called The Network Teacher. And she also is really interested in in thinking about the way networks are wide and diverse. And so you can draw on a lot of people. And I, as as a metaphor, one of the things, I think about this too in my parenting, I always, at when my daughter, especially when my daughter was young, but even now, I used to say, I need three friends who have kids at least 10 years older than her. <laughs> I need at least three friends who, whose kids are in the same grade and at the same school and are experiencing the same thing I am. And I need at least three friends with like babies to hold and also who look at me for advice. <laughs> so I remember that I'm not stupid and I have experiences that matter and can help other people. And I think teachers need that too. Yeah, I, I agree. I really do. You know, it's a matter of how do we balance our love and passion for teaching with the pressures of teaching. Mm-hmm. And those are things I think that need to be addressed as we talk about teacher retention and where we are right now. One of the things I believe, and you hit on that, is mentoring and how mentoring can impact. And some of that mentoring is formal. Some of it is informal. I love when it takes place very natural and you Mm -hmm. find that person that can mentor you. You find those three people here and three people there and three people there that can really 
help guide you or speak to you or just give you someone to talk to. Right. So it's, it's, I'm glad that you talked about that because I think that's so important because so often, I don't know about you, Amy, but I was kind of embarrassed of things that I didn't know when I started teaching. And I was afraid to ask. I definitely was not going to ask the administrator. And I didn't want to necessarily ask my colleagues. So I suffered alone. So that, that was a lot of extra work for me. And you talk about your sister who complained about putting in extra hours. So you find yourself putting in all these hours, reinventing the wheel because you think you're the only one that's going through it to try to survive. I wonder, Tanya, if you were to interview 10 teachers right now, what would you say the top three reasons of why they stay? Yeah, they love something. And often it's either the kids, they love kids, they find them ever fascinating to be around or just full of joy or wonder. And, and or they love their subject, they love the thing they teach. And one of the things that's really, it's not totally black and white, but it's really interesting. Often elementary school teachers talk about loving their the children and the high school teachers talk about loving their subject. That's not 100% true. I mean, I think I loved kids when I went to school. I, I thought I loved, I loved my subject, but I came to really love the kids. I think the third thing, and we haven't talked much about this, is I think teaching is a profession that draws people because they have a debt to repay or to pay forward. So I think a lot of people yeah. come to school because school in some way saved them and they feel an honor or duty to, to give that to kids who are like them. Yeah, so, yeah. And you and you had that kind of feeling too, that you wanted to give back. You know, you saw a need and you felt that this is your responsibility to give back. So what what would you say? And I would definitely say love children. That's one mm -hmm. of the things that really kept me, and I was a middle school teacher, so mm -hmm. it had to be love to keep me there. <laughs> <laughs> I I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Who does that? And so, so what would you say the top three reasons are of why teachers leave? I did a lot of reading about this in the last year, partly because I was doing a grant report and we had worked with teachers in their first five years of teaching because we know that's a vulnerable time that two thirds or half or two thirds of teachers leave in the first five years. If you can get them over that hump, it helps. So as I was writing this grant report at the end of the pandemic, I was like, yeah, what are people saying? And one article in The Guardian quoted a teacher, which I think kind of sums up all of the things. And it goes back to what we've already said, but we have low pay, low respect, low autonomy, and no one listens to us. And now we're being forced to risk our lives and our health. And I think that teacher encapsulated like the whole range of things. One thing I didn't know, but that I learned from a report by the RAND Corporation that was published last year is that teachers in general are more likely to report experiencing frequent job-related stress and symptoms of depression than the general population. And I think, you know, I didn't really talk about the effect of a teacher-proof curriculum on teachers, but I mean, a teacher-proof curriculum means, right, if you are enacting a curriculum 
as it's been handed to you and your kids still don't succeed, then you have two choices. One is to blame yourself, which leads to job-related stress and depression. And the other is to blame other people, right? Like it's the kid, it's the kid's family or community that they come from. It's the teachers who taught this kid before I got him. And that leads to like loneliness and antagonism because you're just always trying to protect yourself by believing everybody else around you is failing or not trying hard enough and you don't have any community. And so I think that's why I think people are leaving. It's lonely, it's hard. And the, the way we've tried to answer the problem by teacher proofing the curriculum or making things easier has made it sort of more lonely and more desperate in a way if it's not working. I want to talk a moment about making teaching look easier because we're seeing that as a problem. I, I feel like teaching is a profession. It, there's nothing easy about it and making it mm-hmm. look easier isn't, I don't think that's very attractive actually. I don't want to think that or to have other people think that my job is easy, but it's, it isn't. What do you have to say about the perception that teaching is being given right now? I mean, <laughs> that like you, like think of all the things you might do in your life for joy, right? Almost none. Of, I mean, actually, what we know from happiness research is that the things that are easiest, like watching TV, let's say, or just like laying around on your couch eating potato chips, Sometimes we go to those things because we're tired and we're worn out, but we know that actually happiness research tells us they don't bring us joy. What brings us joy is doing things in community that are difficult and maybe that we couldn't do alone, but we can do together. And so we should just, I feel like we should just embrace the complexity of teaching. I mean, there are, there's all kinds of ways to think about this. One is that report that teachers make more decisions in a day than an air traffic controller. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't matter how standard the curriculum is. There's somewhere between, you know, depending on where you live, 16 and 49 kids and not, and they are not standard and they're all in your room at the same time. And you are, you know, I was thinking about another metaphor, which is like, imagine if your, if your general health checkup was, took place with 36 other people, your same age, and one doctor and you all sat down in a room and said, okay, like, tell me everything I need to know, right? I mean, that would be insane. You have an individual moment with your doctor to talk about how you feel and what you know and what questions you have, but teachers don't have that option unless they're really savvy at organizing their classroom, they, they don't have that option. So it's very complex and, and, we think about multiple ways into learning something to meet a bunch of kids. So let's just talk about that. Let's just say this is hard and complex, but in the most amazing way, because you have the privilege of being with people when they're learning and you get to design those moments. You get to, you get to diagnose what's happening on the ground. You get to think of new ways to do it. And if you can do that and have some colleagues who really love it too, and help you reflect and learn and design new things, that's like, that's as much fun as 
doing art or cooking together or training as an athlete with the team. And I think that's how we should be preparing teachers to go to schools. Those are that's great. Those are great tips. Those are great tips for us as we prepare candidates because we're trying to prepare them for the long haul. You know, we yeah, try to yeah. make sure we give them enough diverse experiences so that they know this is what teaching is really like. You know, Amy took the challenge of putting her candidates in a very diverse district and they were fearful at first. Coming out of it, they love the students. So I think some of that is exposure. Some of it is mentorship. We have to have these balances. We have to have people to talk to. We have to actually be the professionals that we say we are. And this is a practice that we are continuously learning. We're continuously growing and doing better and using scientific methods and understanding that our students are very, very different. But you know, we also have to turn off that noise, right? Of all these negative things that we hear that are going about going on with teaching. And then at times like this, when you talk about putting strapping guns on teachers, we have to push back. Yeah. We have to push back. So I'm so happy that you're in a space where you get to impact teaching and learning. I am so happy that you're there. You know, I consider you next to next to Oz. You know, there is the <laughs> a leader in National Writing Project and then there's Oz. Wow. You know, I'm looking forward to you continuing to impact change. Thank you. Thank you. I look forward to it every day. And I know not everybody gets to say that about the work they do. So. Well, as we're, I want to turn the attention to colleges of ed, because that's mm -hmm. where we live and breathe. Mm -hmm. um, Joy and I, as teacher educators, we do, we try to implement best standards of practice, but what can colleges of education do better to prepare, but then also help retain teachers? What is, what do you see as our role? I, you hit that question, Amy, um, on the word better. What can we do better? Which is really funny because one of the things I wanted to say in, as you were formulating this question was, I love the book by Atul Gawande called Better. And he is a surgeon who writes about his practice and about the complexities of working in medicine and, and with teens and particularly in surgery. But the book Better sort of gives some frameworks for thinking about how we can get better. And I think that's the first most important thing. Students should understand that they're gonna go into classrooms and they're not like a, like a professional athlete or like a surgeon. They are not going to hit it all out of the ballpark every time. They're gonna have, they're gonna struggle. They're gonna have abject failure days and that that's normal. And it's not because they're not good enough. It's because the work is really hard. The last chapter of Better gives some notes like how, how to just like, go into those complex spaces, prepared for that and able to grow and learn in those spaces. And he has five recommendations and I was like, oh, I don't have my book with me, but I know at least three of them. One is ask unscripted questions. So he talks about meeting with patients and ask, you know, and just getting to know them, asking about baseball or whatever. And I think we don't 
do a great service to our teacher candidates without helping them think about seeing the whole child in front of them and just making relationships with the child, with the child's parents, by just getting to know them beyond the standard curriculum. A second thing he says is be curious and collect data. And he's like, you know, the whole field is too big. So pick one thing that interests you and like follow that curiosity, figure out how you can quantify it or describe it so that you can feel some control over learning more each day. And the third thing he says, which you won't be surprised, I would say is write something down. And there's all sorts of ways to do this, whether you like take 10 minutes at the end of your day and reflect. I love, Ann Whitney has, talks a lot to teachers about different ways to write in reflective ways about their practice. One of my favorite things is write, write a letter you're never gonna send to a kid. Like, is that kid driving you crazy? Write it down, send them, like write a letter that you're never gonna send. But then like, step away from that letter and step back into it and see what you notice about yourself in this relationship. Why does, what's really emotional about this for you? Why do your, why are your feelings so big about it? What is another way you could see it? What if you imagine what their response would be? And there are all kinds of things you can do, but, but writing really helps us get out of the sort of emotional or fearful place take some time, get it out of ourselves so that we can see it on the paper and then make some sense of it. So those are things I think we should teach teachers coming into the profession. It won't be perfect, it'll be hard, but there are ways to really thrive in the, diff in the complexity of it and not see it as you know, some failure of yourself, not to be in control of all things. I like that, you know, we teach candidates, pre-service teachers how to journal but then we stop journaling once we become teachers. So mm -hmm. I think that that's a practice that we should continue to do. And you can, you know, it's a little bit like exercise. You can feel like you don't have time for it, but if you don't make it a big thing, if you say, yep. look, I'm just going to sit here for five minutes yep. before I get up and go home and I'm mm -hmm. just going to write down something. Thank you so much, Tanya. Go ahead, Amy. You were going to say something. Well, I, I now know what to require for my <laughs> student teaching seminars. They're going yes. to uh, have those journals that they're using during their student teaching. So yeah. but you've really, really offered a lot today in this conversation. I know there's more that we could talk about, and that means we can have another conversation in the future. I look forward to that. Wonderful meeting you. Me. Can't wait to see you in person. Yes, I look forward to that. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice.
Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.